Welcome to Sailing in the Mediterranean and Beyond podcast. I'm your host. My name is Franz. So today is New Year's Day, January 1st, 2019. It is 20, well, it's not quite that low right now, but at seven o'clock this morning when I got out of bed and went out on the porch and looked at the thermometer, it was minus 20 degrees up here. So pretty darn cold up here at the ranch. It's crystal clear blue skies today. Out of my office here on the second floor at the ranch, I can look out and see uh, some aspen with all the leaves off of it, some cottonwoods, some pines. I'm in this area, the altitude, where you have mixed forest. So you'll have pine, fir, spruce, cottonwood, and aspen all mixed in together. If I hike up the mountain, oh, maybe maybe a mile from my house, it uh, turns from the mixed forest into pure aspen, straight aspen. And if you go up a little higher from that, or intermixed within the aspen, you'll also have pine. But at that point in time, you lose the cottonwoods because cottonwoods like to be around water. And, uh, of course, I'm about 20 feet away from one of the major rivers in Utah. We've got about a mile of riverfront property, which is our private fishing reserve up here, which is pretty darn nice. But right now it is really cold. And the ski resorts are busy, busy, busy. I have not been skiing. Well, I did. I went skiing once this year up at Brighton with one of my friends. And I had the wrong skis for that day. I had my my powder skis, my Rosnell S2s, I think is what they are. And I should have had my racer cruisers because there was no powder. And uh, the friend I was skiing with was skiing very fast. And normally I don't have a hard time keeping up with anybody, but because I had the wrong skis on, I just did not feel comfortable skiing as fast as I would have if I'd had my racer cruisers on. So that's the latest in Utah. We had Christmas for the first time in my life up here at the ranch with my family, which has been my wife's dream for many, many years. So it was a very special Christmas for us. So I have a couple questions, so let's get on to some questions. Get ready for today's mailbag. I like getting emails from my friends out there. So if you have any thoughts, comments, suggestions, or questions, write me franz1 at medsailor.com or use the contact form at the website. Now for today's emails. First, I got an email from Craig Anderson. Craig is out of Dallas, Texas, and he wrote me, said, Franz... Somewhat a random question, but I'm going to be in the Providence Airport in mid-January, flying out there the next day, and I'm going to drive specifically to Newport, Rhode Island for the specific purpose of, A, I've never been there, and B, I understand there's just some really pretty marinas, sailboats kept there, and thought it would just be cool to see them before having to head out the next day to fly out. So basically looking for any advice for things to see around Newport. If you have any thoughts or recommendations as it relates to sailing, thanks for your thoughts, Craig. Well, Craig, I've been to Newport, Rhode Island one time on a friend's boat. We took my friend's Tollycraft, that's my friend Bud Elam, who's one of my main sailing companions over the years. 
but he had a big 57-foot powerboat, a tolly craft, and I don't remember where I met him. I think I flew into um, to Rhode Island, and he was at a different marina, and then we went up and spent a night up in Newport, Rhode Island. So I've only been there one time, and we took a uh, some of the mansion tours, the Vanderbilt mansions, a lot of lot of wealth uh, in that area, a lot of wealth up in that area. And I'm not the person to talk to about that, so I reached out to our friend Dan Culpepper, who lives just south of there, spent, has spent a lot of time up in Newport, Rhode Island, I think, and I've asked him to reach out and I'm going to try to get him on the podcast for a quick update on what he thinks you should see when you're in Newport, Rhode Island. And if I can't get him to do that, he's going to reach out to you personally because I sent him your contact information. So either you're going to hear it here on the podcast, which would be my preference, or he's going to reach out to you directly and talk to you about that. All right. Thanks for writing, Craig. This one's a a little uh, funny. I got a, one of our Australian listeners, Jason Watson. He wrote, hi, Franz, just signed up as a Patreon, and thanks a lot, Jason. I really appreciate you becoming my latest Patreon. Love the podcast, and thanks very much. I listened to you for 12 hours straight on a recent drive from Sydney to Brisbane. I normally have a terrible time staying alert on these long drives, but on this journey, I was wide awake for the entire trip, so well done. I heard another lady say that she uses your podcast to fall asleep, so it's the opposite effect for me. Cheers, Jason. <laughs> Thanks, Jason. Appreciate that comment. I'm glad I kept you awake. I got another new patron, Jonathan Wexler, and Jonathan's written me a couple emails, so let me relate those to you. Jonathan's the guy that wrote and asked about a couple specific boats that he's looking at buying from, um, from Britain, somewhere in Britain, on choosing a single-handed boat, and he was asking about a Vancouver 27 or a Sadler 34. But he wrote me back because, like I said in that podcast, that I I just don't have the expertise on those boats to pass judgment on them. So he wrote back another email and said, My apologies. My question to you was probably poorly stated for your purposes and honestly for mine. My question is to you both as to specific and at the same time, not specific enough, my mention of the Vancouver and Sadler as med-specific cruisers is of little use to your listener, but was meant to be more as an indicator of a type of boat. Restated, my questions are these. Vessel type for safe sailing across the mid, March through November, at a stretch. Blue water, coastal, cruiser production. Vessel size, Necessary for a single adult for safe passage, as well as considerations of size regarding repair and maintenance expense, moorage, and single-handed manageability. In essence, not a brand or specific model of boat, but practical performance, safety, and durability. Are lighter-built production vessels a sound choice for extensive three-season use, or is a heavier-built displacement wiser? Length is a function of maintenance, single-person handling, and moorage with multiplication of all equipment size and weight and cost. I understand you sail a 28-foot vessel. If it is the lovely boat on your homepage, it's a heavy displacement bluff-bowed cutter from what I can see. You made these choices for a reason. You didn't shift to a 40-foot Bavaria. What is your philosophy on a vessel and gear with considerations for a single person, which I mean he, which I think he means with considerations for a single person or a single handler? Clearly, you are willing to modernize and went with furling. 
but also are not gadget crazy. Simple, reliable, functional, and sensible for a 60-year-old single-handed cruiser. What would you say the minimum should be? So he goes on, but I'm going to cut it off there. And I'm going to address Jonathan's question as a standalone podcast. And that'll be answered in my next podcast. And Jonathan, you also wrote me another email where you addressed the problem I had this summer, which was related to the leather in my hand pump, which had deteriorated to the point where it wasn't functional anymore and had some suggestions for that. Well, you don't need to to worry about me on that. I figured out that there was a company in the United States that sells leather washers for, of all things, windmills. They sell a lot of these little pumps to uh, windmills that irrigate cattle out in the desert. And this company had a a full source of leathers that I could basically buy and just punch a hole in it. Now, the problem is I've got to get the hole right, not right in the center, but as close to the center as possible. So I bought two or three of those just so I'd have them. And then I watched some YouTube videos on making your own own leathers. And then I went out in my workshop and made about four or five leathers. So I'm well stocked with leathers for my hand pump for the rest of my life, I think. I don't think I'm going to have to worry about this ever again. But I was really amazed how simple it was just to make my own leathers. And of course, when you have a nice little workshop like I do, it's easy. (laughs) But in a marina in Dubrovnik, Croatia, it's impossible. So I've taken care of that problem, but thanks for, uh, you suggested a Coleman pump cup washer. And I don't think those are big enough because I had a specific diameter. I think my washer, if I'm recalling off the top of my head, was an inch and a half in diameter. And the Coleman pump washers are much, much smaller than that. But nonetheless, I've taken care of it. And if anybody else is in this situation, just Google leather cup washers And you're going to find a company that has a full selection of different diameters, some with holes punched, some without them. And I called the company up directly, and they said basically they sell a lot of these washers to to ranchers that have windmills that pump water for their stock. But thanks for the suggestion, Jonathan. And I'll address your other question in the next podcast. Got an email from Howard Clayman, our Israeli sailor. He's got a new website up, and I'm just going to share it with you. And I'll try to remember to put it in the show notes. It's called www.sailingisrael.com. I took a look at it. Looks good, Howard. Thanks for sharing that with us. Kevin Yeager, you wrote an email saying you enjoyed the podcast with Matt Grant. I shared your email with Matt Grant, and he was happy to see that. So thanks for sharing that you enjoyed that podcast. I always try to let the people know that are guests on the podcast of comments when they get comments from people that enjoyed it. He was happy to hear that comment. So thanks for sharing that. I got an email from Tony. I think Tony lives near Carmel, California. And he said his son turned me on to my website. And he said, what a great way to get informed. I've listened to the Porthole Install podcast several times. What I'm trying to do is stick a plastic-backed brushed aluminum panel to a door. The porthole method seems like the way to go. Can I have the author's email to bounce the method I derive from the podcast? Also, where's the link that describes the activator, primer, double stick tape, caulk, and supplies? Thanks, Anthony. Or Antony. Antony. Anyway, I sent that to you. I put you in touch with Luis in Portugal. 
Hope he helped you with that. And also, I reached out to you to see if you wanted to do a podcast about your father's adventures because I Googled you and learned a little bit about your father's merchant sailing adventures in the Ionian Islands in World War II. But I never heard back from you. But nonetheless, it sounds like an interesting story to tell if you want to get on the podcast and share it with us. And the last email I want to talk about is I got an email from Craig. Craig's visiting Utah in February and wanted to go skiing. And I'm looking forward to that, Craig. So thanks for reaching out to me, and I look forward to meeting. Hopefully I'll be here. I don't think I have anything planned for February 20th or 21st. So when you come out, give me a call. I sent you my contact information, and let's go skiing at Deer Valley. That's it for today's emails. If you have any thoughts, suggestions, or comments or questions, write me franz1 at medsailor.com or use the contact form at the website. If you want to do me a big favor, you could become a Patreon of the podcast. I have a few listeners out there that are already patrons, and I'm looking for more. If you have some spare change that you could throw my way once in a while, please sign up at patreon.com backslash medsailor. And one more thing, if you like the podcast, I would really appreciate it if you could take the time to write a review of the podcast in iTunes or in your favorite podcast directory. All right, let's get on to today's episode. A while back, I got an email from Bela Musitz, and Bela asked me a couple of questions, and then he told me a little bit about himself, and I thought he would be an interesting person to talk to on the podcast. So this is my interview with Bela Musitz. I'm on Skype today with Bela Musitz. Bela is one of my listeners, and he, he's, uh, you're also a Patreon, as I understand it, right? Uh, I don't think so. I'm, I'm glad you give me credit for that, but <laughs> I, don't, I don't think I am. Okay. Well, I know you wrote me back uh, about one of the uh, comments we had with Jack Andrews, I think, on one of my podcasts, and I said, you sound like an interesting character. Let's get you on the line. So let's, uh, let's review what you do, your history in sailing. You, you gave me a quick bio, but it's better coming right from your mouth than me reading it. So let's just talk about where your interest in sailing came from. Sure, sure. Well, thanks for having me, Franz. I really appreciate the opportunity to uh, to be on uh, your podcast. I'm a longtime listener. I think I've listened uh, from the early, early days. So it's been nice to see the progression. So I started sailing back when I was actually dating my now wife. Uh, her family would go camping on Lake George. Lake George is in upstate New York. It's about a 32 mile long lake. And there's islands on that lake and you can camp on those islands. And um, I would go up for the weekend or sometimes for a week uh, and spend that time camping with them. And her father had a sunfish. And I was typically doing one of two things. If there was no wind, I was out in a little rowboat fishing and if it was windy, I was on the sunfish sailing. And that's really when I sort of fell in love uh, with sailing. And uh, we did that for many, many summers while we dated. And even after we were married, um, for several years, we went up there. And uh, that was sort of the initial dose for me of the sort of peace and tranquility and also the sort of excitement 
and thrills uh, that I, I would get from sailing. And, you know, it's it always amazes me how where else can you get so scared only going at five miles an hour? <laughs> yeah, you know you're going to get wet, too. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, on a sunfish, uh, you know, and it, it uh, I certainly understand about riding moments and tipping over and releasing the sails because uh, it's a very sensitive uh, sailing vessel. So you really get in tune to what the wind is doing, you know, how to balance and trim the sails and all those types of things. So that's sort of where it started. And then, um, as I think I mentioned to you, I'm a long, long time skier and have actually been on the National Ski Patrol since I was 15, 16 years old. And that's actually where I met my wife. And one of the other members of the ski patrol at the area we would patrol at had a sailboat. Uh, and uh, in the summers, he used to sail on the Hudson River. This is uh, around Poughkeepsie, New York. And the Hudson River there is about a mile wide. And uh, they would have some uh, races, I think, on Wednesday nights and on, on weekends. He belonged to like a yacht club there. And he had a O'Day 22. And as most sailing racers are, they're always looking for crew. And when he heard that I was bopping around on a sunfish, he said, hey, how'd you like to come sailing, you know, on a big boat? And I said, sure. And um, so I did that for a couple of summers with him. And it, it, what, it's not what I would call serious sailing. It's pretty low key, pretty relaxed. Um, but here again, I, I kept falling in love more and more with, with sailing. And so between sailing around on his boat and the sunfish up on Lake George, I was hooked. And um, I think the next the next big trip I took was when I was working, one of the guys, I worked at General Electric when I first got out of graduate school. And uh, one of the guys I was working with, his father owned a boat on Long Island Sound. And one weekend he invited me down. I think we drove down on a Friday morning and we spent two nights on the boat. And this was, I can't remember the boat, uh, how big it was, but compared to an O'Day 22, it was huge. I remember that, you know, it had like real berths on it and, and cabins. And we basically sailed around Long Island Sound for those two days. And that was sort of my first taste of uh, spending a night on a boat and uh, sailing a spinnaker and um, just kept getting more and more enamored with this marvelous sport and still sailing on the summers on Lake George on the sunfished whenever I could. And then I think a year or two after we got married, uh, we took the plunge and we bought a Catalina 22, bought a used Catalina 22. And uh, we were living around uh, Poughkeepsie, New York at that time and kept it on the Hudson River at a marina there. And we sailed it there. Uh, I, I clearly still remember that that's when I got my first experience of being caught in a thunderstorm on a sailboat. And I, I remember that was uh, that was eye opening among many things. And uh, 
Interesting enough, that boat, uh, we moved out to California and took that boat out to California with us. Uh, we lived near Sacramento and kept the boat on Folsom Lake, which is in uh, actually named after, or maybe the prison is named after Folsom Lake. I don't know, but one of those two places is named after Folsom. And uh, a nice big size lake there actually had a pretty big fleet of Catalina 22s on it. And we, we kept it there at a marina. I had two young boys at the time and they were in elementary school and you know, the highlight was going out on a weekend and sleeping on the boat Friday or Saturday and Saturday night. And you can imagine for two young kids, that's a real blast and uh, being able to go swimming all the time. And um, actually, we were, I would say one of the funniest things that that happened to us there is what my older son made um, like what's called a boogie board. It's it's basically a round piece of plywood, maybe four feet in diameter. And the idea is you stand on it and you get pulled behind uh, a powerboat on it. And uh, he made one of these because he used to go with a friend of his who had a powerboat. And one day we're out in a sailboat and he brought it and he goes, let's try this on the sailboat. And uh, this little Catalina 22 had like a 9.9 .9 horsepower outboard on it. And sure enough, we could get them up, pulling them behind the <laughs> sailboat, <laughs> which, which was really kind of hilarious as people would give us this look like, what, what, what's going on there? Because <laughs> it looks like he's water skiing. I mean, he's, he's not, but he's on this big disc. And we're pulling him around the lake and just having a blast. Um, I'm looking so at that, Google Earth on Folsom Lake. Yes. Now, can you get into the delta from there? Uh, no, you cannot. Okay. Because Fol Folsom Lake has a big dam on it. All right. Okay. Uh, All right. On the American River. Now, the American River does flow into the Delta. All right. Okay. What were yeah. you doing back in California? What, were, what took you there? So I started a, a business. So I'm an engineer by education. And uh, when I first uh, got out of grad school, I went to work at GE Research at their corporate R&D labs. I spent a couple of years there and then left there and started a business uh, in a, an industrial robotics business. And uh, we raised uh, $3.5 million in venture capital and spent it all and went out of business. And then I uh, was working at IBM Research and that's when we bought the sailboat. And um, I, developed something there that had applications internal to IBM, but also had some applications outside of IBM's business lines. And one in particular was a medical application. And um, IBM, with a little bit of encouragement from me, uh, from myself, uh, decided to spin that out as a separate business because they were not in the medical business. And so uh, that business was a collaboration between myself and a couple of orthopedic surgeons out in California. And I, I handed in my IBM badge and went to work um, out in California to start this business with these two orthopedic surgeons and a handful of other folks. And um, that's what took us to, to California. And, and that's what we were doing out there when I was, I was uh, 
part of the leadership team uh, in, inside that business. All right. I know this is off topic, but I love uh, entrepreneurial endeavors. So I'm going to really a little bit more about this, if you don't mind. Oh, I, sure. Go. Because I, I like. Uh, so, so how did you pay IBM for the technology that you took from them? Was it a so, license or was it a royalty? How did that go about? So they actually owned 49% of the business. Okay. Did they put any money into it in addition to the technology or was that their contribution? Uh, no, they put, uh, they did the initial capitalization for the business. So uh, they funded the business with $3 million in cash and they owned 49% of it on day one. And that gave us sort of the start for the business. And we raised uh, about 15 million additional dollars uh, over a span of like uh, four years for that business. And that business went public in late 1996. Really? What yes. is it still? Was it, I'm sure it's probably been acquired by some other company since then. Yes, it's no, it's no longer in business as a freestanding entity. Uh, we were in the actually the robotic surgical business. We were one of we actually did the very first robotic surgery on a human being. We were doing uh, total hip replacements with the aid of a of a quote unquote robot, uh, which helped the surgeon uh, install um, the total hip replacement. Yeah, so. Uh, I, I know you're interested in entrepreneurship because uh, I have started a podcast of my own uh, several months ago yep. with I a want, colleague. I wanted from, to go there and I wanted to talk to you yeah. about that. So let's just go there right now. Okay. So, yeah, I started this podcast, uh, I think, four months ago with a, a colleague from Germany. Um, I happen to be a professor right now at uh, Clarkson University and uh, where I teach uh, entrepreneurship and innovation. And a colleague of mine who's in Munster, Germany, uh, we started a podcast. And uh, the name of the podcast is uh, The Unconventional Path, uh, Secrets to Igniting Your Business with Bela and Mike. And my elevator pitch for the podcast would be conversations with successful entrepreneurs you've never heard of who have built successful businesses you have never heard of. And uh, trying to uh, really uh, communicate to individuals and people and to the audience, to the listeners, that entrepreneurship is possible for everyone. And, and these are businesses that most people can identify with. You know, so I'm not trying to interview somebody from Facebook or from Google. Um, I'm interviewing folks who have built a nice one or two or maybe a $10 million a year business. And... Uh, they're entrepreneurial just as anyone else is, and, and they're quite successful. So sort of businesses individuals can identify with. Yeah, I listened. I subscribed to your podcast and listened to a couple of them. I was just looking them up right now. How often do you put out a podcast? So right now we put out one every other week. Okay. Uh, they, they release on Sunday night. Starting January, uh, we're going to release one every week. Um, but they'll be slightly different. So we will do long, long form interviews, which run typically 45 minutes in length every other week. And then interspaced between those, uh, we will be doing a short five to 10 minute podcast where my co-host and I will just discuss a particular topic. And those will be five to 10 minutes in length. 
I'm just looking through my library of podcasts right now. I'm looking for your artwork. But there's a, another, another one of our uh, listeners who also has a podcast, and I want to give a shout-out to him. And he is in a specialized business, and he's in the dental business. And I actually just listened to his podcast yesterday, but I can't remember the name of it. Somebody, oh, here it is. The Thriving Dentist with uh, Gary Takix. And he's one of wow. our listeners, too. And so he's got a specialized podcast that appeals to dentists about the dental business. My daughter started her own podcast and, and when she was still in college uh, about occupational therapy. And as soon as she, you know, she got a lot of publicity for it. And as soon as she got hired, because the job led to her job, the, the podcast led to her first job. The hospital wanted to shut it down because they didn't want to give out any. She did. They did not want her to talk about what she was doing in her career, which seemed ridiculous to me. But that's, yeah. that's what happened. But anyway, <laughs> that's very interesting. I listened to one of your podcasts with a woman that was an entrepreneur that was selling Nicole Snow, darn right. good yarns, darn good yarns, exactly. That's yes, yeah, yeah. That was a great one, guy. What a great business she's built. Uh, they'll they'll do close to ten million dollars in sales, and I mean, you know, that's a sizable business. Yeah, yeah. I I haven't told everybody out there that, but I'm living up at the ranch right now, and we've had tremendous snow so far. It was the last time I did a podcast and I talked about the snow conditions, we had had no snow at all, and then suddenly on one day we had like twenty four inches of snow, and it's been snowing since. It snowed a bunch yesterday, and so I bought for the ranch a. Uh, a Kubota tractor with a snowblower on it. And I was listening to your podcast while I was blowing snow off my quarter mile road into my cabin from the main road up the, up the valley. So, so yeah, it was, it, it entertained me for about an hour. I think it was about an hour interview yeah. on for about an hour. So that was a good yes. interview. Yeah. So I'm glad to promote your podcast. I, I like pod, I like podcasts. I like being able to listen to what I choose without a bunch of advertisements in it, or maybe an advertisement at the beginning or end, but not too much. So, yeah, congratulations on setting up that. And I, when I listened to your podcast, when you said you had a colleague from Munster, Germany, I sort of expected to hear a German accent. He must be an American teaching in Munster, Germany, is he? That's correct. Okay. That's correct. So he's a former colleague from Clarkson who uh, a little over a year ago uh, took a, a faculty position uh, at the University of Munster in, in Germany. But yeah, this this whole podcast thing is an amazing medium. I mean, it's it's pretty easy to launch a podcast, and um, they're harder to do than you think they are. <laughs> it's at least easy, to do them it's well. easy to set one up, but it's hard to to be disciplined enough to get the content out there to to build an audience. <laughs> That's right, and then and, and to do it on a on a regular schedule. Yeah, and and you know we we. We've we've been hesitant to do it every week because it's just a lot of work, as you know. Yeah. Who am I? You know that for sure. And uh, um, at some point, we're 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 inching our way to to that schedule. But yeah, it's a great medium, and I, I I'm a runner as well, and so I, you know, I run uh, a good hour a day. So that's what I listen to, and I've been doing it for for years. I've been listening to podcasts. Well, that's great. So let's continue on to your on your sailing adventures. Because I know you've done a little more than you've talked about so far. So I, I got you, t when you went to California, that's sort of where I t cut you off. But let me ask you one more question about the company you started. Who, where is that technology now? What company is using 
the technology you developed way back when? It's been acquired, you sold it, it went public. What, where is it now? Yeah, the, the, the technology as sort of we developed it has been, has been shut down and is, not, is no longer being used. Okay. Yeah, so it's, it's really not uh, being actively used by any surgeons or hospitals in this country. All right, so continuing from Sacramento, or it's not from Sacramento. Well, I guess it was near Sacramento. Yeah, Sacramento. Where did you go from there then? So um, after that company went public, um, I, I, I didn't want to, I, I, I had no interest in running a public company and um, departed from that and uh, moved back east, uh, east, back to the East Coast to upstate New York, brought the Catalina 22 back with us. And by that time, my father-in-law had actually bought a cabin on Lake George. And uh, so I had a perfect place to keep the boat. I had a nice dock. And uh, so we kept it there for probably close to 25 years, um, and probably more than that, actually, and went sailing quite a bit on Lake George and enjoyed that immensely. And... Uh, Although we didn't, we didn't spend many. I don't think we spent hardly any nights on on it. Uh, Lake George is an interesting lake. The water is is crystal clear. You can see bottom in 30, 35 feet of water. But there's very few good anchorages. It's all fundamentally rock, so it's tough to get uh, a good anchor hold. And there's very few protected coves or bays. And it's a long, skinny lake. It's 32 miles long and probably a mile, mile and a half wide at its widest. So it's just not a good overnight, overnight place. Um, so um, we would typically go for day sails and then come back to the cabin and, and, and stay there. And then about, I think it was 10, maybe 15 years ago now, uh, I have two sons and, and they were now in their late teens, early 20s, you know, going to college and stuff, we decided to charter a boat on Lake Champlain. So Lake Champlain borders Vermont and New York. It's about 125 miles long. And I looked into chartering a boat. And I didn't have any certifications or anything. And um, there's a couple of small charter companies up there. And the contacted one and and they sounded interesting to us they had a nice they had a 36 foot hunter and um, since we didn't have any certifications the the guy said look come up let me spend half a day with you and you know if you're if if i think you're okay i'll let you take the boat out and charter it for a week so we did that we went up and uh spent half a day with him and he you know i took us through sort of a bigger boat and how it all works. And he felt confident in our abilities to sail the boat and dock the boat. And, and that began sort of uh, five or six years of chartering on Lake Champlain as part of the vacations that we would do up there. And um, that's a beautiful lake as well. Nice crystal clear water, lots of nice bays and a, and a very, very large sailing community there. I would say the, there's probably three sailboats for every two powerboats up there. So it's a, it's a really big sailing community. A lot of people from Canada, particularly Montreal, oftentimes you hear more French being spoken than, than English. 
but a real thriving sort of set of sailboats up there. And any anchorage on an evening is packed full of sailboats and, and maybe one powerboat. So that was really nice. Learned a lot about sort of bigger boat sailing and really, really enjoyed that. We did that, like I said, for five or six years and then um, decided to try to expand our horizons a little bit and took a uh, ASA course. We took the 101, 103, 104, which basically my wife and I took this, uh, gives you your bare boat certificate. And we took that down on the Chesapeake at one of the many schools that exist down there. And so we did that. We knocked that off in a week. It was like a one-week intensive course. And uh, we did that with Bay Sail, I okay, think I was, was the name of it. I was going to ask school. you the name yep. of it and what your experience was and, and <clears throat> what, what you thought of it in general because people are always asking for recommendations on schools that they might get it. So give, it, give me your quick opinion on how they did for you. Sure. So, uh, so there was uh, this was Bay Sail, and they're located in Haver de Grace, which is at the very northern tip of the Chesapeake. And um, it was great. We we went there. Uh, we we met on a Sunday night, and uh, we slept on the boat. There was my wife, myself. There was one other student. So there's three students and uh, uh, instructor. And you know, Friday night he sort of took us through. Okay, here's the things we got to think about provisioning. <laughs> and you know, the next morning we went to the grocery store. We provisioned, and um, Got the boat provisioned. Then we went over the boat systems, and you know, by the by the end of and uh, my wife and I had sailing experience. Uh, the other student had sailed very very little, and uh, I thought the course was great. I remember our instructor's name was Michael. I, I don't remember his last name, but uh, we really learned a lot. I I I thought I knew something about sailing. But there was just like so many things I didn't know. <laughs> uh, and I probably still don't know. Uh, I'm, I'm sure I still don't know. And uh, so it really stepped up uh, my confidence level. And, uh, you know, we covered everything from anchoring to docking to, you know, uh, reefing in the sails to knots. And it was pretty intensive because you're actually knocking off three ASA courses in the span of five days. And. You know, we'd cook dinner, and then after dinner, we'd study, and I, we had to take three tests. I think the first test we took on, like, a, a, a Tuesday night, and then the next one was, like, Thursday night, and then the final exam was Friday night. So it was it was challenging. Uh, it wasn't uh, as relaxing as, you know, a normal cruise would be, but I highly recommend, uh, recommend those courses. Okay, good. All right. So that's where you got your ASA certification, then. Yes. And, and then once I had that, then I, I've never had any challenges in chartering a boat. So typically when we when we charter a boat, once you make the inquiry, I keep a sailing resume that talks about the various different uh, sailing experiences I've had. And I get pretty detailed, you know, like I'll say, you know, a week on the Chesapeake and we departed Rock Hall. We went to Annapolis, spent the night there. From there went blah, 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 blah. And I always send that off to the charter company along with my ASA certifications. And I've never had any 
anyone question that or anyone challenge it at all. It's always always been been quite easy. So we did chartering on a Chesapeake for, I think we did five or six years of that. And um, one year, my son and I and his wife chartered down in Tampa. We had an opera. My my younger son is an emergency room physician, as his as and his wife is as well. So they get time off, not at normal vacation times, and they had some time off in January. I mean, we went down to Tampa and, and chartered a boat down there for a week. And that was really interesting. That was sort of uh, a different experience as well. Uh, we got out into the, the Gulf, which was, you know, that was my really first experience with saltwater. Uh, the Chesapeake is brackish. It's not really that all that salty. So that was interesting. And uh, the highlight, I would say, of my sailing experience was this past summer, a friend of mine purchased a Passport 40. It's about probably 35 years old. Mm-hmm. Just a beautiful a boat. True cruising boat, yeah. True, oh, yes. true ocean-worthy cruising boat, yeah. Yeah, one of the classics, mm-hmm. as they say. Yep. One of the classic uh, ocean, ocean boats. And he purchased it down in uh, Fort Lauderdale. And he wanted to move it up to Annapolis, for the winter, he was going to have some work done on it. And uh, so he asked me if I would uh, accompany him and his son uh, to move it up uh, from Fort Lauderdale to Annapolis. And that was sort of my first offshore experience. We did um, about a third of the trip on the ICW and two thirds of the trip out uh, offshore. And um, we did uh, probably about 56 hours kind of from Fort Lauderdale up to up to Charleston uh, was one straight stretch where we did offshore. And there was three of us on the boat and we did uh, three hour watches, three hours on, six hours off. And, you know, we had harnesses and were tethered in and all of those things that up to this point I had just read about and uh or listen to other people talk about them and got to experience and then when we got up to charleston we spent a day there looking around and then we did the icw for a stretch and then we went back out and did um two additional one night trips overnight trips and uh, it all went smooth and got the boat up to annapolis and Hopefully this May, the current plan is to bring the boat from Annapolis up to Providence, Rhode Island. So um, I'm looking forward to that as well. So that was that again, I, it's been a sort of a long journey. I mean, I think, you know, the skills some, some people do what I've done over 35 years in one summer. But uh, it's been sort of the part time sailing and trying to balance that with family and other folks' interest, and you know all of those challenges as well. And 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 I, and I admire you for, for you know basically taking your six weeks off every summer for a long number of years now, to to go get your sailing fix. Now you can do that too. You're you're an academic, so you could do that. <laughs> yes, yes, I can. And so I, 
so here's here's I'm, I'm sure your your other your some of your other listeners struggle with this as well. Um, for me, spending two three weeks on a boat is great. Uh, my wife, for her, two or three days on the boat is enough. <laughs> and I already do enough things without her. Yeah. I'm not looking to add yet another thing <laughs> that, okay. that I, you know, I go fly fishing, I go skiing, I go running. Those are all things that I do on my own. And after 41 years of marriage, we still get along and we still like each other. <laughs> so I'm just, I struggle with that. Does she you tend know. to get seasick or motion sickness? No. Okay. No, she just, you know, three days in a confined space with me is enough. <laughs> You just just not getting her off the boat enough. So that's a, see that's the advantage of the Mediterranean. You get off the boat every night. You go wander around a little village somewhere. So uh, so the the boat is just basically a bedroom and a and a yes. transportation source for the most part. At least that's the way I look at it. And the sailing's fun once in a while, but like I say in the Mediterranean, it's usually too much wind or not enough wind. So it's uh, one or the other. But, yeah. Uh, yeah, my my wife decided she liked it when I uh, the first trip we took. I think I've told this story. We we chartered a boat in Tahiti and she had a wonderful time, and then we chartered a boat in Greece and she had a wonderful time. And she's you know I, this, this is not such a bad way of seeing the world, but uh, you know I'm glad she and but just like you, she doesn't want to be on the boat much more than maybe a month at the most. Yes, and then she she says I'm going home. You. To you hang around with your friends, continue on, but I'm going back to my life, and that's it. So, and that's great. Yeah. As long as she's willing to let me continue doing it, that's fine with me too. So, yeah, and and I think that's great. You know, make that work out, and and uh, I think there's um, certainly the the your description of you know basically using the boat as a hotel room and maybe a two or three hour sail during the day, and then spending the rest of the time on land, uh, walking around and exploring. Uh, we did a fair amount of that on the Chesapeake. The Chesapeake uh, lends itself um, or, or can lend itself to that type of itinerary where you're sailing no more than a half a day from from port to port or anchorage to anchorage. And uh, whereas when we were on Champlain, uh, that was much more anchoring out every night and you're sort of out in the middle of nowhere. So there's you're on the boat. Mm-hmm. Day and night. It's more like wilderness um, sailing than it sounds. Yes. Like. Yeah. Yes. Yes. But the Chesapeake, it was 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 an extraordinary place. Um, but I, anyway, I, I still admire folks like yourself uh, who have uh, taken that that deep plunge. But you know, then again, I had a blast on my friend's boat. <laughs> <laughs> and that's and that's the best way to sail is on somebody uh, else's boat. <laughs> you know, and 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 he and I had this conversation about it. I said, you know, when I'm chartering a boat. I'm like, I'm, I'm thinking about everything. It's like, you know, making sure everything on the boat is tip top, making, you know, making sure I know where we're going, what direction is the wind coming? Can, uh, can we get there in time? All those things that are going around in your brain when you're sort of the captain of the boat. And when I was the just crew on his boat and, and him and his son are both very conscientious, very safety minded. So like after the first day, I totally relaxed because uh, I let them worry about how far are we going to try to sail, you know, 
and and it was really great. I, I did find it to be sort of a different experience than when you're captain of the boat and you're you know concerned about all the things you need to, to take in consideration. Uh, just just being a crew was kind of nice. Uh, but I also know part of that was because I had total confidence in their abilities and I was very comfortable with them making those decisions. Great. I got to ask you about your name, Bela Musitz. Bela is an unusual name. So tell me what ethnic background does that come from? Sure. So Bela is Hungarian. Okay. Uh, so any male with the first name of Bela is almost 100% guaranteed to be Hungarian. Uh, it's one of those Hungarian names that does not have an English translation. So uh, I was actually born there and um, came to this country as a refugee in 1956 with my mom and my dad. Uh, there was a, a revolution in Hungary in 1956, and we walked across the border uh, into a refugee camp in Austria. And the interesting story about that, my, my parents talk about arriving at this refugee camp and um, when you got there, you had to fill out a card. And on that card, you had to put your name, your address, you know, where you're from, how many in your party, all sorts of information. And there was, there, you had to check, there was four boxes on the card and you had, to, it said, pick one. <laughs> and you know, this, this, this is like a real statement about life and, and the decisions you make and, and how you end up where you end up. So you had to pick one of these four boxes. One box was Canada. One box was United States, one box was Australia, and the other box was United Kingdom. And, and my dad checked the United States box. And that's how we ended up here. Okay. What was your, your father's occupation? So my father uh, and his brother owned a business in Budapest, which is where we lived. And um, they did uh, – uh, he's an engineer – and so they did sort of uh, built uh, mechanical uh, equipment for various different manufacturing uh, companies. Okay. Okay, yeah. sort of a machine shop sort of company then. Is that right? Yes, okay. yes, yes. So they actually had a machine shop. So they actually made the equipment itself as well as design. And they design, did design and fabrication of, uh, of equipment. Have you been back? Did you learn the language? And have you been back? So I, I grew up speaking the language at home because mm -hmm. I was uh, just a little over three years old when we came here. So at home, I spoke Hungarian. And to my mom, uh, I still speak Hungarian to this day. Uh, so I did learn the language. I'm, I'm, I'm bilingual. Uh, Hungarian is not a real useful language, <laughs> but, but uh, unless you're in Hungary, then it's very useful. And uh, so, yes, I, I speak both languages. And I grew up in a Hungarian household. That was sort of my native tongue that spoke all the time with my mom, my dad, and uh, my sister who was born here as well. Yeah. So have you been back? Have you, do you go back? Have oh. you been back to Hungary? Yes. So uh, actually, it's a good question. I remember the first time we went back. So my, my father and my grandfather, so my father and his father were – um, involved in the revolution. And so that's the reason my father left. 
because it, when it was clear the revolution wasn't going to work, uh, he basically said, we got to get out of here. Mm-hmm. And so the first time we went back, I still remember this. I watched the lunar landing in a hotel in Budapest. So that was, what, 1969, mm-hmm. I think? And so that's the first time we went back. But my dad wanted to make sure we were citizens of the United States before we went back. Oh, okay, okay. So you know, we had we all three of us—my mom, my dad, and I—had been naturalized. We became citizens of this country, and and then he said, "Okay, now I feel comfortable enough." Because it was because uh, Hungary was behind the Iron Curtain, right? So it's controlled by the Soviets. This is before the Berlin Wall came down and the and the crumbling of of the Soviet Union. So, you know, it was, and that was an eye-open experience for me as, as a, as a high school kid going back there and sort of going through, you know, border control where there's guys with machine guns and stuff, you know, this is before there was any airport security. (laughs) So I'm just used to, you know, walking around any, you can go any place and go there and there's, you know, border control and they're looking at you and, you know, checking your passport and all that kind of stuff. So that was that was sort of an interesting experience. And I remember going to visit my grandparents. My grand, we we lived in uh, Budapest. So my mom and dad and I lived when we when we were there. But they both, my mom and my dad, both grew up on the western side of Hungary, very close to Aust- Austria, uh-huh. out in the country. And I remember going to visit my grandparents. Isn't there a big so lake? Is, There's a big lake there that there uh, that goes yes. between Budapest and Hungary, or I mean Austria, as I recall. Uh, actually, the it's Lake Balaton. Yep. Okay. And it and it's south of Budapest. Ah, all right. Yes, and I remember going to my grandparents' house. Now this is 1969, uh, and they didn't have running water. Hmm. They had an outhouse. They had an outhouse. Right. And they had a they had a well, you know, the old kind of wells you see on on, you know, the cowboy movies that I used to watch as a kid with a bucket on the end of a rope and you lower the rope into the water and you get your water out. And so that was like that was like, wow, when we were in Budapest, it looked like any other big city. But you got out into the country and the country was pretty poor. So that was pretty eye opening to me as a as a young, young high schooler. And uh, it was a great experience. I, I, I mean, I've never forgotten it. And um, and we've been back since uh, many times. My mom and dad went back every year for a large number of years. And I've been back a handful of times. And, and uh, now all of those places, you know, are are much more modern. And we've actually my father's brother lives in the house that where my grandmother used to live. And, you know, it looks like any other house now. It's been rebuilt and stuff, so. Yeah, I've been, yeah. To, I've been to Budapest a couple times. One time when I was just traveling around, I've told the story where I got off the boat for a, I, had, I was between crews and I decided to take the train some places. I went up to, to Vienna and I thought, oh, where do I go from here? And then I thought, oh, let's go up to Budapest. So I took the train from Vienna, not, not Vienna, Venice, up to Budapest. And then Budapest over to, to uh Austria, Salzburg, Salzburg. Yep. And uh, in Salzburg, I realized that my crew was joining me the next day back down in Salerno, Italy. And I thought, geez, I got to get going. So 
Ended up traveling all night by train to get back down in time for my next crew to get on the boat. But yeah. uh, that's how easy it is to travel by rail around Europe. But uh, the second time, what we do for cheap uh, air flights, a friend of mine uh, gave me a buddy pass on Delta Airlines to fly over and back one year. But I couldn't fly into, um, well, I couldn't get a flight out of uh, Zagreb, so I ended up having to get a flight out of Budapest. So I took a mm-hmm. took a train from Zagreb up to Budapest. Went right by that big, long lake you're talking I, I remember going by. That's why it was Lake Batal- Balaton, yeah. So tell me, um, what are your plans for this next year then? Well, hopefully next, uh, this coming May, mm-hmm. uh, we're going to get on this Passport 40 and uh, bring it uh, from Annapolis up to Providence, Rhode Island. So that means we'll come up, sail up the Jersey coast up into New York City and uh, around Manhattan, up through Hell's Gate, out into Long Island Sound, and then uh, out uh, over to you know, over to Rhode Island and then up Narragansett Bay up to Providence, Rhode Island, where he's going to keep the boat. So I think hopefully that'll be uh, my big adventure for for the um, for this summer. You're going to take the time to go all the way around Manhattan Island. I don't know if we'll do a 360 around it, but we'll certainly go up the what is yeah. that? The east side the, yeah. up the East River, I guess it's called. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's, yeah. it's worth doing if you have the time. I, we did that one one day in my friend's powerboat we had a powerboat he brought it this is a powerboat he bought in puerto rico and i helped him to deliver it up as far as the turks and caicos and then one of his engines gave out at the turks and caicos and the crew abandoned him and he had to hire some professional people to help him deliver it the rest of the way because that was right over the thanksgiving holidays and everybody said you know what my wife expects me back for thanksgiving and we were stuck in the turks and caicos and all Mm. had to head home at that point in time but anyway he brought it back and he took it all the way up the East Coast and sailed it, motored it, I should say, motored it up and down the East Coast for a few years. And one year he had it over just across from Manhattan in New, in New Jersey. And uh, then one day we just got on it and took it around, all the way around Manhattan Island, which was a lot of fun. It was, you know, worth doing if you have the chance. So, Yeah, it's, it's, it's uh, one of the greatest experiences I had this this was back when I worked for General Electric, so this is back in the late 70s. Now, this tells you how airline travel has changed. Uh, back in those days, I think it was Pan Am was still around. Mm-hmm. And, if, and uh, if you flew, and they had a free helicopter shuttle between the three New York airports, between LaGuardia, Newark, and JFK. So I would deliberately book a flight that landed into one of the airports and departed from the other. <laughs> and I would get on the helicopter. And I remember one of the one of the trips was on a beautiful clear day and I was flu- flying from uh, I think it was LaGuardia over to Newark and we just flew right past the southern tip of Manhattan and oh my gosh that was gorgeous so it it is you're right it's a great a great visual sort of experience to be able to see that and I'm sure in a boat it's even greater All right so I'm going to just ask you some personal questions about what your your, your department is doing teaching entrepreneurship at your college tell tell us a little bit about that and then I'll ask you to add, add anything else we've missed We'll call it a podcast. Okay, sounds great, Franz. Uh, so I I teach uh, 
predominantly around uh, starting a business. I teach one course on sort of fundamental basic entrepreneurship, what it takes to get one going and sort of the ins and outs of it. Uh, we talk a lot about opportunity recognition, uh, meaning part of that challenge is being observant. I have the students actually do an interesting exercise. I, I have them very early in the course uh, go out to a grocery store in groups of two or three and just hang out in the grocery store for an hour or two and come back with a list of ideas where you could improve the customer shopping experience. And uh, trying to get this notion across that successful businesses are, are a result of someone finding an opportunity that, and, and producing something, a product or service that customers want. And so we spend a lot of time on that. Um, I teach another course in sort of growing an entrepreneurial business. So now that you've started the business, you know, you have to start thinking about hiring people. You have payroll, you have contracts with vendors and suppliers, and sort of, you know, do you have to now start having managers addition to yourself? How do you divide up the responsibilities in a business? Trying to do some self-assessment on your own strengths and weaknesses and making sure that people you bring into the business complement each other skill-wise thinking about the culture that you'll have inside of your business, uh, what's sort of the vibe that you want to have. And uh, we do a lot of hands-on stuff, uh, not just me, but other faculty members and, and then to school in general at Clarkson. Uh, we do a fair amount of experiential, I would call it experiential learning. Uh, students do lots of projects. We have various business plan competitions and uh, something recently they started is called a presidential challenge where uh, there's a, a problem stated uh, early in the academic year and then students can kind of uh, put together solutions to solve that problem, uh, entrepreneurial solutions that result in some kind of product of some, some form of a product. And, and then they get they win some money. Uh, they compete for some money that often they use to then you know start their business. Um, and I also teach a course in private equity uh, that sort of talks about the ins and outs of private equity all the way from angel investing through leverage buyout funds and big hedge funds, including venture capital. Uh, yeah, so that's sort of in a nutshell the, the types of things that uh, I do and that we do there at Clarkson. All right, so I just uh, zoomed in on Clarkson University on Google Earth. That's a small community, isn't it? It is. <laughs> it is. It's a, it's a small rural uh, town in upstate New York, very close to the Canadian border. Uh, there's t it's a kind of a university town because there's St. Lawrence University, which is a few miles away. And then there's uh, State of New York has a, a university there uh, called Potsdam. Um, and uh, so it's a lot of college students, a lot of uh, sort of that college town vibe to it. A lot of it. energy then, a lot of energy. Yes. That's nice. Well, thank you, Bela. Anything else we should touch before we call it an interview? No, I think it was, it was great, Franz. Thank you very much for having me on your show, and uh, I appreciate it. And uh I, uh, I had a lot of fun. Thanks a lot. 
life is short. In the end, all that really matters is the memories you make. So make a few. Go sailing. <laughs>